Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I'm reporting for Contrarian's Corner for The Last Airbender, also known as Part 1 of the Shamal Anthology. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. I said welcome back. I usually just start with welcome. Yes, welcome back if you're a returning listener. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Uh, with the controversy that this movie brings along with it, and just the lightning rod of attention that is M. Night Shyamalan. It's safe to say we might get one or two new listeners on this, so welcome. He has a new movie coming out. He does? Yeah. It's, uh, you haven't seen the trailer, obviously, because then you would know. It's about some people that uh, are trapped in a beach where they're aging faster than normal. I don't know. I I, I saw the trailer once, kind of like on my phone. I wasn't paying much attention. I, if I do watch it, I want to go back row blind, not knowing anything. Why not? You know, it's, hey, knowing that it's uh, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan is enough. Yeah, that that should basically give you forewarning. <laughs> uh, as Julio made mention of, this is uh, part one of the Shyamalan anthology. As we were very blessed and fortunate enough to be on the live stream for the Cure this year, covering the happening and uh, our incentives for contributions and donations during our hour wasn't just me catching psoriasis but also (laughs) basically if we made enough money we would do up to four episodes covering uh what we feel are kind of the peaks and valleys of Shyamalan's filmography we made all that money and then some so Julio we're going to go on a a four-part journey into the mind of a maniac uh, that is (laughs) M. Night Shyamalan Yes, this is a. I mean, it's nowhere near as as expansive as as the summer of Travolta or the summer of Winona or even the uh, Haddonfield Nights. But mm-hmm. I don't know that we could survive a full summer of Shyamalan. Uh, no. <laughs> so we're kicking it off here with the Last Airbender. So is the name of the anime Avatar? Yes. Okay, but of course, being that this came out in 2010, there was. No room for confusion as to who the King Avatar was that year. So known as the last airbender. And from there, Julio, why don't you take us through the roadmap of our, our quick little summer road trip here with uh, M. Night Shyamalan. All right. Well, the Shyamalan anthology is going to be made up of four installments. Installment number one, the last airbender. Uh, installment number two, signs. So we're going to go with a fresh one. Then we're going to go back to the rotten one for After Earth. The only one that I know of, the only Shyamalan movie that I know of that he directed but didn't write. 
uh, I mean, that might have changed by now, but at the time of its release, I think that was accurate. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to close with the freshest Shyamalan of them all, the one that started, the one that, that got the ball rolling, and that's uh, The Sixth Sense. What else? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, there's, there's really no place to end but the beginning of, of M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I mean, we could do Stuart Little, but but no. <laughs> I'm kind of bummed he doesn't do more like allusions to that movie or just kind of Easter eggs like Gina Davis voices like, a, you know, a, an extra or something like that. It's just too bad. He just hides a little mouse in each of his movies in the background. Yeah, it's like um, on all the box art of his DVDs. There's like a mouse. You just got to like look really hard for it. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize the timing of this it, as we speak right now is June 30th. And tomorrow will be 11 years since the release of this movie. It was released on July 1st, 2010. So, Oh, that's, that's foreboding. That puts extra responsibility on our shoulders. <laughs> it makes the tagline of the movie even more poignant. Four nations, one destiny. That's uh, <laughs> here to discuss. So getting all of the pleasantries out of the way with the, the, um, the summer stay, the Shamal anthology. So now we know that's coming. Uh, let's go ahead and just, get to what it is that we do here on the contrarians if this is your first time listening thank you so much for tuning in if you're a returning listener you know we got love for y'all just give us a moment here while we explain it what it is we do here on the contrarians we like to rage against the rotten tomatoes machine find a movie on rotten tomatoes that is highly rated a lot of times known as certified fresh as that beautiful logo that movie companies are so proud to uh, put on their advertising material and even some dvd box art these days We'll find one of those movies, usually falls about 85% and above on Rotten Tomatoes, and make a case for maybe why that is not the whole truth. Maybe uh, some of the elements of the movie that were uh, overlooked and uh, not explored, or just basically maybe why the critics got it wrong. And then, of course, on the other side of the coin, uh, we'll find a movie uh, lowly rated, usually about 30% below, one of those nasty green splotches. Known as Rotten, and we'll make a case for the positive merit of that film, find some of the things that were maybe uh, overshadowed and uh, unfairly maligned and overblown. Being that The Last Airbender is at a startling 5% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, we will be in the first portion of this podcast speaking to the positive merit that came from this. Uh, Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel, about this uh, adaptation, this live-action adaptation. They just have to hang around to the second half of the podcast. That's correct. The second half of the podcast, aptly titled Real Talk. Uh, that's where we tell you how we really feel. And uh, in some cases, uh, we've never even talked to each other about the movie before. So so it's a surprise to us how the other one feels, as well as a surprise to the audience. And then in some of the movies, I mean, there's movies that we've done that Everybody knows how we feel because we bring them up all the time. <laughs> but in this case, Alex, you hadn't seen The Last Airbender before, and I saw it once long, long ago. So it could go either way. Come real talk. Maybe both of us loved it. Maybe, all bets maybe are off. We could butt heads. One of us loves it. One of us hates it. I'm, I'm curious to see what happens because we had we were in agreement after we did The Happening, but The Happening is a very different movie. Yes. It's a a different Shyamalan. (laughs) It is. I was trying to think earlier. I I remember this coming out. I feel like uh, it would have been maybe one of like the last midnights that I worked because I remember not really knowing anything about it. By this point in my life, I had already checked out on Shyamalan. But I remember um, it would have been one of the last midnights I worked at the Denton Theater before I transferred to Bee Cave to meet you, Julio. But it was... (laughs) um, 
I just remember being like, why are there so many people here? Because it, you know, <laughs> there was like three or four theaters sold out, and I just knew nothing about it. And then, of course, just being downstairs when everyone was coming out and just the looks of just utter disgust and disdain on the face of the audience was still to this day. I don't really get it. And we'll get into that more in the second portion of this podcast. Um, now, as mentioned, never seen this movie. Went in blind as a bat. Fucking have no knowledge of Avatar the anime. The anime is one of those things in my life. And it's like country music. I it's just never happened to me. <laughs> I, I can like tell you maybe about Cowboy Bebop. Like I could you know tell hey. you about um I don't know Whalen Dragon Jennings. Ball. No, I don't. I don't know anything about Dragon Ball Z. Like well, when, but you but you know of its existence. I know of its existence. Like I know of American Dad's existence. It doesn't mean that I really know anything more about it or care to really get into it. I can just tell you, anime is one of those things that it just never appealed to me like it did to so many others. And I've had really good friends of mine that were just crazy about it, but I, I've just never got it. So really, no expectations at all coming into this, other than it. This bar was already low because we're talking about an M Night Shyamalan movie after The Sixth Sense. Uh, watched a copy of it online. Really, nothing more to say on it. There, uh, it's on Netflix, I believe. It is. And Julio, do you own this? Do you have the 4K restoration of this? I do, but I it's still shrink wrapped <laughs> because I, my hope is that a couple of years from now I'll be able to resell it and make some profit. Just Thank waiting you. for that Shyamalan Renaissance. Uh, so, so I just went the Netflix route. And you said you did see this. You just don't recall if you screened this or went to the theater to see it. But you did see it upon its original theatrical run. Yeah, I want to say I screened it because either I screened it or when I watched it, it was an empty theater. Because I want to say that if I'd been surrounded by a crowd, I would have caught some sort of reaction. And I don't remember any of that. So I, I was either by myself screening it or by myself in an empty theater <laughs> in the middle of the day. Uh, but either way, I did not have the pleasure of watching it with fans of the anime or fans of Shyamalan or both. Or fans at all. <laughs> fans of cinema. 5% Julio. We've, we've done some low ones in our day, but this is amongst them. Uh, what exactly? I mean, this baby got lambasted. What, <laughs> what were people saying about it? Got a few rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. I'll start with Andra Hubert from NME who says, time was, the endings of M. Night Shyamalan films were always the biggest mystery. Now, the only mystery remaining is how, in a recession, he continues to get studios to fund his films. Well, not to jump too far ahead to spoilers, but I'll tell you how. Budget, $150 million. Box office return, $320 million. That's how. That is how, Andrea. Recession? What recession? <laughs> Next, Jay Stone from Canada.com. The Last Airbender is not just a flop, it's a big budget flop, and it's a throwback to that grand old genre, the movie that's so bad that it's bad. This is from a Canadian. It stings a little more. <laughs> I'm not your buddy, guy. He really just could have laid it on a little bit more there. <laughs> he pulled his punches because, you know, it's Shyamalan, eh? Yeah, uh, and also Canadians are just so damn polite. Yep. Uh, next uh Perry Seibert from TV Guide. There's no third act twist because we never get out of the first act. To me, that is that kind of shows that Mr. Seibert here was too familiar with Shyamalan's filmography. I think he went in expecting the Shyamalan formula and then was thrown off when Shyamalan decided to you know throw everybody for a loop and do something different. He doesn't need a third act twist every single time. 
That's mm. I, I thought I would have learned that by the time that the happening came out. Apparently not. <laughs> well, let's close with Scott Kalura from IGN Movies, who says, would it be more accurate to call this the last Shyamalan movie? Right now? No, it would not. <laughs> well, nope. <laughs> well, I, I'm guessing he was not looking at the box office when he when he wrote that quip. I, I would doubt it. Julio, The Last Airbender begins with a custom Paramount signature. I have talked about uh, Mm -hmm. several times in this podcast history of how much I love that. It's such a little thing that so many people would not notice at all. But when the signature title card for a studio is customized to have something to do with the theme of the movie, by God, do I love that. (laughs) And so... That like right away put me in a good mood. And then the, I had no idea this was a Nickelodeon movie, so I couldn't help but just like audibly laugh when the Nickelodeon logo came up next. I, we might have talked about this before, but have you ever seen a Nickelodeon movie theatrically? In the theater? Yeah, yeah. As in like it uh, came out and you went to see it. And- the Rugrats movie. And let me test my knowledge right now and see if I'm right about what the first Nickelodeon movie was. It was. It was Harriet the Spy with uh, uh, Michelle Trachtenberg of Contrarian's, <laughs> Contrarian's fame a la Eurotrip. Um, yeah, I've, I saw Good Burger. I, I probably rented that. I remember the tape was orange because, you know, it used to be better. <laughs> the Rugrats movie I saw in the theater. Uh, that might be it because that would have been... When, when did Rugrats come out? 98. So... Yeah, and the next Nickelodeon movie didn't come out till 2000, and then, you know, 2000's year I turned 13, so I really became too cool for that shit. And now, joke's on you. Well, I was going to say, then the the uh, pendulum swung back, because by 2004, I was kind of over that period of better than, and I remember, I loved the SpongeBob movie. Have you ever seen the SpongeBob SquarePants movie? The first one. I've seen the first one, which I loved. Yeah, it's great. It's so funny. So... We uh, go from that to 2010 with The Last Airbender, which was sandwiched in between Imagine That, starring Eddie Murphy, and Rango with Johnny Depp, which was a critical and um, financial success, if I remember correctly. Didn't it get nominated for Best Animated Movie? I think so. It might have been the last big Johnny Depp hit, where it was just Johnny Depp carrying the movie. Well, you know, his voice. Yes. What what we really wanted from him. So... (laughs) Yeah, no forewarning that this was going to be a Nickelodeon joint. And so that, of course, just kind of caught me off guard and made me snicker. Um, As we're prone to do from time to time here, referencing the godsend that is Wikipedia uh, to kick us off here with the plot synopsis. A century has passed since the Fire Nation declared war on the other three nations of air, water and earth in their attempt to conquer the world. Soka and his sister Katara, who belong to the Southern Water Tribe, discover an unusual iceberg. Breaking into the iceberg releases a beam of light and reveals a 12-year-old boy named Aang and his flying pet bison, Appa. Uh, Spoiler, does the dog die? No, his flying bison does not die in this movie. He kind of disappears, but he doesn't die, at least to our knowledge. Maybe in the future it would have died, but unfortunately, even with all that money, we didn't get the, the end of the story. What the hell? (laughs) So the Avatar, where that comes from, the Avatar is like a mythical being that possesses the ability to control all four elements of uh, air, wind, earth, and fire. Whereas, as we just mentioned, the world is broken into basically four nations, and it's each of those respectively. And Aang here is the Avatar, 
And it's apparently like the same sentient being over millennia. It's just they take on different beings. And unfortunately, Aang has been kind of frozen in ice for 100 years or some shit. Julio, <laughs> you are way more in tune with the sci-fi realm uh, than I am. So I may be referencing you uh, or throwing it over to you a couple times to kind of catch us up to the plot because there are parts in this where I was just like, whatever, Julio will know what's going on. Hey, uh, you, you, and I'll throw it to uh, famous filmmaker Marty Scorsese who made a movie called Kundun about the Dalai Lama, which was kind of the adult version of this. No superpowers, but it follows the story of a kid that's he's believed to be the latest reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. And uh, they even do that. They have that scene there where they take him to a room and they show him like the objects from the previous Dalai Lama. And, you know, he, he basically it's, it's a whole bunch of objects and he has to pick the objects from the old Dalai Lama. And this kid does. And they're like, oh, he see, he is the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. And then, you know, he grows and becomes an adult that gets involved in the political strife in Tibet and all this stuff. And that was like serious Dalai Lama slash Kundun vibes in uh, Last Airbender, except that kind of uh, Hollywoodized, you know, that for mass consumption, because Kundun was not a big blockbuster. <laughs> it was it was an art movie. It was Marty Scorsese kind of being artsy. So I was glad that Shyamalan kind of took those elements and just decided to make it mainstream yeah so with here one thing i I mean it's going to be present all throughout the movie but one thing i kind of expected just due to its poor reception was like that it looked bad and right away you know we have the female character katara played by nicole piltz and she like she's the first character we see kind of manipulating the elements where she's just kind of practicing her ability to manipulate water Mm -hmm. and uh, then of course we get the big iceberg that breaks open at no point in this movie do any of the visual effects look bad. So that's one positive that was immediately established with me that stayed present throughout the entire film was that it looks great. And, you know, it's clearly a movie like the Marvel movies that's made half on a soundstage in front of a green wall uh, with just a lot of visual effects. But it all looks believable. And again, a huge part of that for me was coming into this just assuming the worst of everything. So to see how good this movie looks, it was great and refreshing. And as someone like you who's seen it before, I, I if I remember correctly, it was released for the purposes of three dimensions. Yep. But even on my small computer screen, I was blown away here by what M. Night was able to do with a very modest $150 million budget. Yeah, that was one of my main concerns uh, starting the movie because I remember having watched it in 3D, having experienced it in 3D and just having that immersive experience, right? That, that were, And this is not the kind of lame 3D where it's just... You know, where you can tell the 3D shots, it's like, oh, you know, he points at the camera and the finger's coming at you or whatever. You know, this was mm-hmm. just the whole environment was 3D. It, it's kind of a shame, like you said, that the other avatar kind of took all the all the attention as far as 3D went. But but here, it, it, so I was I was nervous now that I was going to watch it just on a regular TV to see if that was if I was going to feel the the lack of 3D watching it. But I didn't because it looks gorgeous. You could freeze frame at any point in the movie and it's just it's like a painting and again i don't want to keep harping on the fact that we never got to see the rest of i don't know shambhalan's trilogy quadrilogy whatever he was gonna do but this movie takes place mostly i guess in hoth you know the ice area of the planet and i really wanted to see the rest of you know what else he could have done with exploring this universe you know all the other areas where other elements are more prevalent 
So, but what we got here was was really it, it looked gorgeous. So, Aang is unleashed, and he is like a kid that he, he's not like. He is a kid that doesn't understand the the power that he possesses. The gentleman Noah Ringer played Aang. And I'm, I'm not overly familiar with any of the other work he had. It looks like uh, his only other film was Cowboys and Aliens, which I have never seen. Unfortunately, I imagine he kind of got the Jake Lloyd treatment from this and kind of bullied out of the industry just because of people's conceptions of how he played it. Not an easy feat. You got to get shaved bald and get a tattoo on your scalp. And <laughs> when you're 12 years old, that, that can be kind of uh, traumatizing. I wonder if he was uh, if he was a fan of the anime. Or if he was like, uh, you know, how you have the two types of actors, the ones that do all the research and, uh, you know, they read the original material or they watch the original TV show or whatever. And then you have the actors that are like, nope, I don't want that stuff to influence my take on the character. So I'm just going to read the script and I'm Mm -hmm. going to work really hard at not learning anything that has to do with previous incarnations of the character. I wonder Mm -hmm. how this kid like took it if he was like. And I wish I could remember. I don't know if Daniel Day-Lewis is one way or the other. But, you know, that, that kind of commitment. You just, you're like, oh, I'm playing uh, The Last Airbender. Okay, well, I am canceling my subscription to Nickelodeon and <laughs> anywhere else where I could <laughs> even catch a glimpse of that show. And then the industry turns its back on him. Before we get too much time to really know uh, Aang, and more importantly, Appa, uh, Zuko, Prince Zuko shows up. Danny? Who? Yeah, Dev Patel, Slumdog. I mean, that's I, I know that's the name of the movie, but it's uh, <laughs> unfortunately for Mr. Patel, he was in a movie so iconic and his DNA is so ingratiated in it that, sorry, Dev, you're just going to be Slumdog. I feel bad because I know he walks down the street every day and someone's like, hey, Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> I, I don't feel bad because he's Dev Patel. And I, I here's a, the thing, and it's relevant to this, this movie. It, at one po- at some point, Dev Patel managed to outgrow the Slumdog persona. I mean, I think that people still call him Slumdog, and obviously they still associate that role with him. But mm. he's managed to get to the point where now you call him Dev Patel. You yeah. know, like if you if you say Dev Patel, people know who you're talking about, and uh, that didn't happen overnight. And I think that this movie was part of that process where he was trying really hard to shed the image of slumdog millionaire and just prove that he could do so many other things. <laughs> For example, I'm going to be the bad guy in this in this new fantasy movie by from M. Night Shyamalan and I'm gonna, my face is going to be half burned and I'm just going to be angry and I'm going to have fire powers. I mean, it's it's a whole thing. It's not slumdog at all. And even if the movie failed in the end it, uh, with critics I think that it went a long way towards making people appreciate Dev Patel in a new light. I would certainly hope so, because immediately he's showing a a completely different character than what we knew him from in Slumdog Millionaire. He was very, you know, almost weak and kind of just would kowtow to any and every scenario in that movie. And here he shows up and he's angry because he saw the beacon of light that was released when the Avatar was freed from his uh, iceberg, his holding cell. So... They come in, basically Aang releases himself uh, to make sure that the nothing bad happens to the tribe because he surrenders to save the village. Um, and this is where, who is Dev Patel's right-hand man? His uncle. His uncle. General Iron. 
played by Sean Tube. And this is where they figure out that he is the Avatar because he can control all the elements. They just It's not even like that big of a discovery. They just put all these elements in front of him and he's able to <laughs> manipulate him. And then the, it's like it, they, they have to look back and forth at each other a couple times just to make sure. And they're like, my God, he's the last airbender. <laughs> it's like, what are the odds? <laughs> we just followed the light and we found him. Um, okay, so so we've met the the water people. Which are you know the two siblings? Uh, what are they called? Saka and Katara. Yes. Uh, yeah. So so they, you know their village, they're water people, and now we've met the fire people, which are Dev Patel and his uncle and his army, and I guess Aang is one of the air people, and and the, the earth people are kind of like in our future. We know that that's coming, but. Go back to the way the movie looks, the character design, like the production design of it, right? Because they look very, mm-hmm. very different. You look at the water people, and they look like uh, people that would live in Alaska, whereas the fire people, they look like they're militarized. They have this sort of like, not full body armor, but they look like they mean business. That kind of stuff is, I, I think that sometimes people underestimate how hard it is to create a fantasy world from scratch. <laughs> you just have to, oh, yeah. you know, this is not set in our reality. You basically have to figure out every little detail of, of this mythology. And it's kind of a shame that this movie isn't perfect. Yeah, but mm-hmm. people kind of focus on all the things that didn't work and didn't give Shyamalan credit for all the things that worked, which there's a lot of them. And production design is one of them. You know, it's like every time that we met one of these new tribes, it was just such a joy to see what else he had done in this in this world. Absolutely. And another thing I mentioned, we were talking so far about the visual effects. It keeps building until the end, the crescendo. And it, mm-hmm. at no point is there like a scene until the end where you're like, oh, my God, that's that's the greatest thing that's going to be in this movie. It's paced very well as far as the visuals go. But this is kind of the first sampling we get of Aang's ability uh, to bend air as he evades these guards on the way out and he escapes and ends up back with uh, Soka and Katara. Uh, now, this is where they travel to the Southern Air Temple where it comes crashing down and all in the moment of realization for Aang as he realizes he's been, he thought he had been gone for like three or four days, but he's been in that iceberg for a hundred years and the entirety of his people have been eradicated so much so that they are literally just a skull and bones left in this field of just very brittle bones. Cause he steps on one and it basically turns into powder steps on his neighbor. <laughs> a lot to ask of Noah ringer to try to pull this scene off. He he gets the the iconic no moment, <laughs> and Shyamalan he he deploys that pretty early in the movie, kind of like letting you know, look, most movies kind of save this for the climax. Uh, I I don't have time for this. There there are bigger things to come, bigger and better things to come. So let's get let's get through the no, the big iconic no. I you know early the first twenty minutes of the movie. Now this is also where I got some serious vibes. From many of uh, Shyamalan's other inspirations, this is not just about the Last Airbender anime, I'm assuming. I haven't seen the anime, but this this had a lot of uh, Luke Skywalker coming back to his aunt and uncle's house and finding out that the stormtroopers have destroyed them. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that vibe. And also, now we're dealing with Captain America coming out, being thawed from the iceberg and realizing that it's not World War II anymore. <laughs> it's like a completely different... Uh, era the mcu didn't even exist back then but the comic book stories did and, oh, yeah. uh, 
Miss Shyamalan just basically taking all his pop culture knowledge and just throwing it on the screen, merging it with with the anime and with everything else. This is his big fantasy movie, you know, and, and people kind of rejected it because it wasn't horror. Yeah, I think a lot of people were just thinking like he was throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. But I, in my opinion, especially with uh, the exception of Dev Patel, you know, trying to recreate all this with a fairly, you know, underutilized or more uh, under the radar cast. Mm hmm. I mean, I don't know. We, we talk about this all the time. You got to give him credit for what he was at least trying to do here. In some people's eyes, it may not have worked, but he gives this Noah Ringer kid this big Oscar type. He sets him up to succeed here, and it may not have completely worked in everyone's eyes, but uh, I guess it's now as good a time to any ask what, what you think about Noah Ringer's chops as an actor, specifically in the role of Aang. I think he has a really tough job because we don't have anything to relate him to. You know, it's like we can't say, oh, he's he's playing an avatar really well. And I'm talking us as like members of the regular audience, right? And then on the other hand, you have fans of the anime who are trying to see how he plays a cartoon character. So it's not fair on either way, right? You know, we don't know what an avatar looks like. And the people that, that watch the anime only know what a cartoon animated avatar looks like. So he couldn't win. He did, I think that what he did was give us his version of the Avatar of The Last Airbender, and that version is consistent from beginning to end of the movie. I think that if you just let go of your preconceptions because you've watched the, the animated version, and if you just embrace what he's putting out there because you know you, you don't know what, what else to expect, I, I think it works. It's meant to be a little alien, and it's meant to be a little weird. That's that's the whole point. I mean, it's, it, this is a a chosen one story, right? Like he's his mm -hmm. he, Neo, he's uh his Luke, he's Jesus Christ. They're supposed to be kind of like the odd ones out, and and they have this whole journey about learning to accept themselves and all that stuff. So I think he does well. I mean, I, you know my opinion with kid actors. I'm like, please don't. But here he's <laughs> he's great. He 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 never overdoes like the powers. And he never gets too cute. He he never gets too uh, wise beyond his years. He's just, you know, he's just, I, I don't know how else to describe it. He's, he's the avatar. <laughs> he's the live action avatar. Basically overcome with grief by the situation at hand when he figures out all this at once and it's all dawning of him. He enters this, not, not catatonic, but uh, meditative state uh, in which... We get this like spirit dragon who shows up a couple times throughout the movie. It's a place mentally that Aang goes to that is outside the realms that normies are able to access. So this is just kind of a tease to set that up. So they come across another recluse. Uh, it's this little girl who's throwing rocks at members of, uh, I believe it's the fire army. Mm -hmm. uh, as we quickly find out that they are led by... Um, Asif uh, Mandavi from The Daily Show. Yes, a, a definitive, hey, that guy guy. <laughs> when I saw him, I was like, he's in a lot of things that I've seen before. Spider-Man 2. Uh, Ghost Town, which I'm a big fan of. Uh -huh. And uh, it's kind of a funny story, which I'm not particularly a big fan of, but that's definitely no fault of his own. For sure, Spider-Man 2. And uh, yeah, he's got a, a vast filmography, but been on TV, like you mentioned, The Daily Show. He's... He's one of those people you see and you're like, hey, that guy, I know him from someplace. So typically in a movie, when you see that, it's more of like a calming presence, but he's an evil motherfucker in this movie. <laughs> so M. Night was like, get me all the people or people that look like people, and I'm going to cast them in the exact opposite role that people are expecting. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, going back to the way that, that, you know, you were talking about the casting and just the, the fostering of talent. I think that 
you go about it two ways. One, you give opportunities to brand newcomers. You know, people like like the kid playing Avatar, because that's how you build the next generation of great performers. You they have to start somewhere, and then you do the the other half of your cast with people that are that already have a career, but that maybe they haven't done something like what you're going to offer them in this movie. And yeah, never seen this guy Asif Mandev play a villain, play a twisted individual. I mean, he's always a funny guy. The closest I've I've seen him to to being mean. Is in, in Spider Man Two when he's yelling at Peter for not delivering the pizzas fast enough. <laughs> That's so right. It, it's it's such a stretch and it works. You know, it just it keeps you off guard and and now I don't know what to expect. Right, like I, he could he could kill somebody in the next scene. Uh, so that was that was great. That was such a pleasure to see him there stretching his uh, his acting muscles. This leads to uh, a battle between basically dwellers of the land and also the fire army what the story that what i'm picking up on julio and you know throw it back to you if this is incorrect the fire nation is basically wanting to take over everywhere they're the bad guys and everyone else is kind of in a united effort against them but specifically uh it's like the water people that want them gone which makes sense water right. and fire <laughs> and whatnot but the bad guys in this are definitely the fire nation and this scene here of course, leads to an impromptu battle with all sorts of fucking crazy mythical shit going on. It's through this, though, that we learn that Aang has yet to master anything besides airbending. Uh, it's the fire, water, and earth he can't, he knows he can control, but he hasn't mastered that yet. The reason for it is because he ran away when he found out that he was going to be the avatar because he doesn't want that responsibility. Again, 12 year old kid, a lot to put on his head. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I mean, everybody does that, right? It's 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 the the refusal of the call. That's that's part of the hero's journey. You know, every every classic heroic journey has that moment where the hero is presented with the choice to go on the adventure, and he says no, and then something happens, and then he ends up saying, "Okay, yes, never mind." And going back to Luke Skywalker, you know, he says, "No, I'm not going to go with you, Obi Wan Kenobi," and then goes back and finds out that his family has been killed, and then he's like, "Well, fuck it, I guess I'm going." So th- that's kind of like what happens here with with Ang. With he run away before they finish his his Avatar training, and then he got frozen for a hundred years, and now his people are gone. So what else is he gonna do? <laughs> he's gonna finish his training somehow. But before we move forward in the story, Alex, I really want to talk about probably the most inventive element uh, of this movie. I'm assuming it has its roots in the anime, but whatever the case, wherever it came from, it's it's probably one of the most memorable things, which is the way that these people battle and the way that they manifest their powers. Because it's mm-hmm. not just like, oh, I'm going to shoot fireballs at you and I'm going to move water towards you and throw rocks and whatever no they dance while they're doing it like that's the whole point they channel their energy by dancing so like you end up, yeah exactly like, so it, it's it's a mix of what you see on screen it's like half dance off half supernatural battle and it's like never seen that before i'm pretty sure i haven't seen it since in as if that wasn't enough a few times during the movie and certainly in this specific moment where you have the earth people and then the water people and the fire people fighting it's all in one unbroken shot. Like Shyamalan's camera keeps moving from one person to the yes. other and following the elements. It's just like not every filmmaker can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and definitely they can't do it with such precision, you know, making it look as clean as Shyamalan does it here. I mean, this is a guy that had, by the time that he made Last Surrender, he had, what, five, six movies under his belt? Big movies. So I think that maybe, again, we, we just kind of took for granted the things that, 
that he always does well. Like, it's like, oh, big deal. Shyamalan can have like pretty shots and, and make things look great. And <laughs> but it's still there. It's still worthy of praise, you know. And then you throw in the new elements, which are like the way that these battles take place. It's it's great. It, it's so graceful uh, just seeing these people. It's, it's certainly. It's a lot easier in the eyes than all the superhero bullshit that we have to deal with today, where it's just a whole bunch of CGI and no no real art <laughs> to, to the way that, that those battles unfold. Nothing to back it up with. You know, Zack Snyder's slow motion over and over. Here, whenever there's <laughs> slow motion, it counts. And, and like you said, it's the idea that he needs to still learn these things and be taught these skills it all it makes sense it applies because it's an action movie after all and you got to have a montage of some sort so they take a side trip this is basically where ang's intuition is leading him because he sees like this temple that's away uh, far off in the distance and he believes there he can get to that meditative state again where he can access what he needs to and what he needs to see and hopefully bring back that spirit dragon unfortunately when he gets up there there's one lowly elderly resident who recognizes him and knows who he is but immediately betrays him and sells him out uh (laughs) to the the fire nation they're back again already and it's they take him and they have him tied up and it's crazy shit like they're what do they say they they don't want to kill him because then he'll just be born again so is the idea or he'll at least be reincarnated mm-hmm. is the idea that they're just gonna keep him hostage so he can't do anything cerebro style that that sounds like a solid plan i was i was happy to see somebody really quickly point out the the fallacy you know the the whole like well we shouldn't kill him because that then he just He's born again, and then we're back to square one. Finally, after searching for him for a hundred years, we found him. It would be really dumb if we did the one thing that would uh, guarantee that we lose him again. So that's pretty cool. Now, at this point, it, I guess we should mention that there's dissent among the the Fire Nation because it turns out that Dev Patel, who's I guess the prince of the Fire Nation, he's actually persona non grata in the kingdom. He's being exiled. So I, I skipped over my note there. My note says Patel has a backstory. He's a disgraced former member of the <laughs> army there. You use the word exiled, which is perfect. They just were like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. He is, uh, his father, who's played by Cliff Curtis. Yes. Another that know, guy. Yeah. Another that guy. I couldn't tell you where from. Uh, actually, one of the Walking Dead series. I think he's one of the main characters there. But yeah, it's another that guy. Yeah. His father decided that he was too soft and he just sent him out after burning his face and now the only way that he can come back into his father's good graces is to bring him the avatar so really he is in a race with uh asif mandiv because if asif mandiv gets the avatar and brings him to cliff curtis then that means that Dev patel is exiled forever but if Dev patel gets the avatar he gets to be a prince again and then he can uh he can tell Asif Mandiv to fuck off because they don't get along. <laughs> tell him to cram it. Are they brothers or are they just... I don't think so because they okay. never mentioned that. He has a sister that we don't meet until much, much later. But uh, no, I think that there's just... Uh, I think that uh, Asif Mandiv is just a, a general that's enjoying a little too much the fact that he's... Right now, he's more powerful than the disgraced prince. Because yeah. he has some line in it where he's like, your son or something like that. And I'm just like, wait a minute. Are they brothers? And he's <laughs> got yeah, it. Like when a, when a mother tells the father, like, your son. Yeah. 
my Cliff Curtis, that guy, it would be Sunshine because I just watched that recently. Yes. Really yeah, from. he's there. He's he's in a shitload of movies. Uh, yes. He's always good. So, well, all this to say that it would be so easy to just have the fire people be this unified front of kind of faceless bad guys but the fact yeah. that now you have you have conflict within them that makes it so much more interesting um because it allows you to have somebody who's a real son of a bitch like Asif Mandiv and then you have Dev Patel who's also on the side of the villains but he has layers and you know we can't help it because he's not as bad as as the other guy we root for him a little bit yeah, I mean, Dev Patel, uh, sorry, you're going to root for him no matter what after, <laughs> if, if you see Slumdog Millionaire. That's just it's the way the cookie crumbles there. So captured, strung up, and then it leads to this insane battle because like this fucking ninja shows up known as the Blue Spirit to help Aang escape. And again, you know, we already talked about like the element battle that came a little bit earlier with the four different nations, kind of a little sampling of what they can do. This is more of just people of the Fire Nation dealing with, like I said, a ninja and then (laughs) Aang, who is obviously an airbender. And that's the extent of what he's using it for here. Again, not every movie has to be Chinatown. Not everything has to be, you know, interstellar, uh, have some really intricate plot or anything like that. Sometimes... Dudes just got to be dudes, and you need a good action movie. And in this scene here, this ninja's like taking everybody out, and there's this awesome uh, just <laughs> cavalcade of visual effects with Aang bending air and like throwing shit at people, stirring up a fog. And you know, it's these two people, they take on a, an entire army. And it's a bit of a lengthy scene, but it's. Uh, it's awesome, and it's accompanied by a, just a fantastic score. So, this up until this point in the movie, and especially after this scene, I was like, "All right, what is this just notorious history, <laughs> legacy that this movie has?" Because so far, you know, this this is perfectly serviceable. I think that part of it was just that people wanted Shyamalan to fail. It it just you know what I mean? Like it, it gets everybody. It's it's just the, the you know you get the backlash and the backlash to the backlash. You know people love something, then it becomes so popular that now people get sick of it and and turn on it, and then eventually it has a renaissance and people start appreciating it again. It, it's just the never ending cycle of being in the public spotlight. So. Yeah, Shyamalan was Hollywood's darling for a few movies, and then he did something that people didn't like, and they blew it out of proportion, and and then you know he made the happening, <laughs> and then I think that after the happening, people were just looking for him to fail, and and that was that's the problem that you know this is not a failure, this is just something completely different. We kind of touched on it during our our lesson for the cure segment where we were talking about the happening and how that was a movie where he decided to make very conscious choices to do something different uh, from what he was known for. So here he's dealing with special effects in a scale that he never has before. And he's, he's never done like a fantasy epic. And that's really what he's doing here. This is, this is Star Wars. And I, I think that people sometimes knowingly, I think, miss the point like on purpose. And they were judging this movie as if it was meant to be another Sixth Sense or even another Unbreakable. When it's like, no, it's not a space opera, but you know, an elements opera. You don't go, you don't watch Star Wars. And I know I keep going back to Star Wars, but it's because there's so many parallels. Um, you don't go to Star Wars and you start criticizing the acting, you know, or the, you know, the reliance on special effects or, or 
any of that. You know, you just go to Star Wars and you sit back and you enjoy the ride. And that's what, for some reason, critics couldn't do and audiences couldn't do with uh, Last Airbender. It's an interesting point. I never really thought about that. The, they just wrote it off beforehand. They they wanted it to fail, but then also when they got this and it wasn't what they were thinking it was going to be from Shyamalan, they're just like, eh, fuck it. It's like um, Music of the Heart, that drama that Wes Craven directed with mm-hmm. Meryl Streep. That's why that movie didn't succeed. People are like, you're Wes Craven. We don't want to see you trying anything serious. In this case, it was M. Night Shyamalan. We don't want to see how cool your action scenes are. We, we've made up our mind already. <laughs> yep. Just fuck off. So it turns out that this ninja is Dev Patel Zuko, and he ends up getting knocked out in the process. I thought I got killed. I thought I got shot in the face with an arrow. So my note says, <laughs> Slumdog killed, parenthetically, question mark. By one hell of a shot, because this dude shoots an arrow over an entire bridge. But it turns out he wasn't killed, so that's good. But Aang's sure to like be with him and recoup him until the next morning to make sure he's okay. And they escape under the cover of fog, under the cover of darkness. But then he leaves him behind. Because at first I thought, oh man, they're going to team up. Uh, but no, <laughs> Aang just left him behind after he realized that, after he made sure that he was okay, he he just left. Because the next time you see... Uh, Dev Patel, he's talking to his uncle, mm-hmm. and the uncle is like, "So where were you all night?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, spoiler alert: we come to find out that dude's a snake in the grass, and he's been relaying intel to um, Asif Mandiv and just selling out the whole plan that these guys have. So the the plan from here is Ang and his crew end up going to the North Water Tribe. This Julio, you know this shit a lot better than I do. This is where it just started to look like what Game of Thrones is in my brain. Like the they have the princess there with like the platinum blonde hair. Uh, princess Christina Aguilera. Yeah, and everyone's just kind of like walking around, not necessarily unhappy, but not happy with their lives either. And the elements just look really <laughs> shitty. That's that's basically all I know of what Game of Thrones is. So I mean, that is that is part of Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're it's basically an ice kingdom, which looks mm-hmm. awesome. But they do have people that can help train Aang and his water skills because he's starting to learn. Something that's kind of been teased throughout it is um, Katara. She She's of the water tribe and is kind of... She's the last remaining waterbender, according to this note here of her tribe. I didn't catch that part. But she's been toying and practicing hers throughout this. She gets in kind of a quick scuffle with Dev Patel where it's... Water versus fire. But everyone's kind of honing their skills here because it just obviously war is brewing and there's just trouble looming over the air as the Fire Nation is going to lead their march into this tribe. At this point, is there something beyond the Avatar that they're wanting or is it just they're going to kill everyone they can until they get the Avatar? I think it sounded like they were using... It was like a two... There were the two objectives. One is they want the Avatar and they know the Avatar is there. But also, they're like, well, since we're going that way, we might as well exterminate this tribe. <laughs> <laughs> Two birds, one stone. Exactly. Um, I really, I really appreciate it. Uh, this moment of calm, though, we have this montage of them training, and it's not just Ang training, but also uh, Katara and then all the other people there. It's just, you know, it made me think. This is what I wanted from the X Men movies. Uh, the X Men movies kind of got lost on the the set pieces of just action battles and uh, they never really gave it due to the to the school itself you know that Xavier's school 
it's supposed to be about training people how to use their powers. And that's a big part of the mythology. But you hardly ever see it in the movies. Like when you see it, it's just a couple minutes, one scene, you know, and there's not really much to it. This this movie really for a solid at least five minutes, if not more, it just dedicates itself to showing us how Alan is trying and failing and then getting a little better. And it's just great. You know, it, it's the kind of thing that it's again, it's special because you don't get to see it often in other movies and similar movies. And uh, that was cool. Again, I hadn't seen anything like that before. Just a whole group of people learning to manipulate water to different degrees of success. So as you mentioned, General Iron has been selling out the secrets of what's going on with Zuko and also Aang and his crew. Uh, Zuko shows up. Uh, this is where I mentioned he gets into a bit of a scuffle with Katara and then gets in like his ass absolutely handed to him by Aang. They get into like this fight in like a, it wasn't a stairwell, but it was like the top of a tower. It looked like a bell tower or some shit, but he just gets his ass kicked, and I I can't tell what he's trying to do because obviously he's trying to help him in the end. But he, what he's want he wants to take him and return him to the kingdom, right? That way he can ascend back up into their good graces. Right. Yeah. If he delivers the avatar to to his father, then his father is gonna forgive him and you know believe that he's worthy again. Um, but so he doesn't he, really necessarily want to hurt him, but he just wants to get him and turn him over to his people. Right. Now, his plan, is, it's just him and his uncle, because he's surrounded by an army that is under the under the command of Asif Mandiv, who obviously he wants the Avatar for himself. So the odds are, are against Dev Patel. But again, it's like you said, you know, you, you can't help but root for him. At the same time, we're also rooting for, for Aang. So when they're fighting, it's just one of those things where it's exciting to see him battle, but you kind of want them to bury the hatchet and instead join forces. Yeah, so Aang gets the better of him in really definitive fashion and then just kind of freezes him in this giant block of ice, which Aang, 12-year-old kid, I get it, goes beyond him, but he should have realized this dude has the ability of fire and just could have <laughs> melted his way through it, which he eventually does. But as the people of the Fire Nation start pushing in and taking over, uh, Asif Mandivi gets in and goes to basically where their temple is, where they keep their fucking precogs, which are just like two spirit fish. And he rounds them up into a bag and then just stabs them because he says this is what controls their power. And so we are the gods now. And then even uh, General Iron's like trying to talk him out of. He's like, you don't know what's going to happen. This is bad for everybody. I love that the attention to detail from Shyamalan, how how in tune he is with his audience, because when they first arrived and he captures the fish in. I'm like, man, that's that's so easy. Why would such a powerful being, like a spirit, allow itself to be so vulnerable, right? Because he mm-hmm. catches it. Like it's not even like the fish tries to escape. No, just grabs the fish, puts it in the bag, and uh, and then literally, like the next line was from as if Bandif saying, <laughs> musing out loud about how how uh, weird it is that gods would put themselves as such fragile creatures, and then the general says, "Oh, that's because." It's supposed to be a test, I think, of our limitations or whatever. You know, like, thank you for explaining it. It's like he heard me asking the question in my head, and then he just he just answered it. Yeah, and so he stabs his fish. Everything goes awry. It somehow gives Iron, like, superpowers because he can, can, he can just make flames appear now. He can no longer control them. And then everything just, like, starts dying in the sense of just fading the the red sun overtakes the blue moon and just kind of starts illuminating the land. It's bad shit. Uh, I don't know if it's directly here, but somewhere around this time when things are just going haywire 
is when Aang is able to reach his meditative state again where he goes into basically just full-on avatar mode and speaks to the spirit dragon who just basically tells him, find your soulmate, Homer. Uh, he <laughs> tells him to use the ocean because he's like um, lacking confidence in his abilities and how to prove that he really is you know, the king's shit and he just <laughs> use the ocean. This is like why the movie paid off spectacularly for me because i thought that was like a metaphor this dude ends up like in the end using the entire ocean as a weapon so (laughs) it's actually fucking awesome anyway back in the real realm the real world out of this meditative utopia that he's in everything's falling apart and this is where the princess princess you ye princess aguilera this is where princess you has to end up sacrificing herself as the Wikipedia page says, in a tragic turn of events, she sacrificed herself to save the water tribe and the balance of the planet by turning into the moon. I mean, that's some metal shit right there. That's- yeah, it's sad too because, uh, and, and we we kind of went past it, but there is uh, halfway through the movie, there's this romantic subplot between the princess and uh, oh god, what's his name? The brother, Sucka, Suka, Suka. Suka uh, is fine too. I like that. <laughs> He's a sucker. No. Uh, well, there, there's there's romance in the air. From the moment that they arrive, they they make eyes at each other and they smile and and then he volunteers to be her protector to to just make sure that she's that she makes it alive. And then of course he fails here, uh, but it wasn't his choice in the end. It was just her <laughs> deciding that. And I think the way it goes is that because those spirits had saved her life when she was a baby. Now she could return the favor, kill herself, and then give her life back to the fish, and then balance would be restored. Very poetic. Uh, Shyamalan's dialogue is it's pretty unique, and it could be mm-hmm. kind of an acquired taste sometimes. But when it works, it works. When you're with it, it's just you know like reading Shakespeare. And in this case, it's just the way that he explains all the backstory. It's just pretty beautiful. And uh, and then it's just tragic love story. This. She she dies, and this kid, Suka uh, Suka, he uh, he's just crying by by her dead body. It's just heartbreaking in the middle of this massive battle that's going on. Yeah, and all of the her platinum hair turns to black. Unfortunately, as her spirit fades on, but it restores balance to her land and her tribe at that point in time. Asif Mandivi, like this, this might be. One of the most brutal bad guy deaths we have covered in, in the entire run of the Contrarians. We've done some killer action movies, but he gets into a standoff with uh, General Iron and also uh, Zuko, Dev Patel, and gets into it, just that a standoff with them. And Dev Patel is getting all riled up and he's, ah, I'm going to kill you type thing. And then Iron just kind of talks him down and says, you know, it's not, not the way. And he protects him, he shields him as Mandivi like tries to kind of Pearl Harbor him with this big fire attack. <laughs> and he says, you know, you never have any friends. He says some one liner to him about how he always keeps his guard down or he never has any protection or something like that. And then this is when he turns around and sees that there's four of these water benders behind him that put him into this massive bubble. Like uh, they just encase him in water, lift him probably 60 feet above the ground, wait till he drowns inside the bubble, and then they dissipate the water to where he just falls and lands face first on the concrete. It is fucking wild. And then uh, Shyamalan turns to the audience. 
Are you not entertained? <laughs> I'm trying to think of something on par with that. We've done with like, you know, what is it? One of the Jurassic Parks where the bad guy gets eaten up by the dinosaurs. And uh, I'm trying to think of even something we've done, like the bad guy. Well, recently, killed. recently where when Jason was in the sewers and he got hit with all that ah. toxic waste. And that's like child's play compared to this. <laughs> Admiral Zhao, he got it bad. But it seemed warranted because he had just killed that fish a few minutes before. And he was like trying to <laughs> take over the world. And They warned him. They told him, don't do it. Yeah. A, sh- a shocking end as I did not expect to see anything that brutal in this movie. So fair play to M. Night. He was like, fuck it. We got five minutes left. I'm going all in. <laughs> So, of course, the battle rages on, and this is where uh, Aang pretty much ascends to his full potential. He finds the spot where he stakes out. He starts doing his water dance, and he pulls up the entire front of the ocean, and he's just got it hovering over the tribe, the whole area. It's just he's holding up the ocean, basically telling the fire tribe, if y'all don't fuck off or surrender right now, this is all coming down on you. And it's built with like a big crescendo of the score and everything to like, he's doing it. He's doing it. He's figured out, you know, he's reaching the peak and the (laughs) the full potential of his powers. So they surrender. Therefore, you know, the water tribe here wins the battle. And I guess Aang is their god now. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, we finally come to, to the end of this particular leg of the journey. He's he accepts. His awesomeness, really. That's that's what his arc is in the movie. We could all see how awesome he was, and we all knew that it would be the world would be better if he was the Avatar, and he embraced that. But of course, that like he told us in his backstory, he ran away from the responsibility, uh, and then he was frozen for a hundred years. And now here at the end of the movie, he finally embraces the responsibility because after he saves them, everybody is bowing down to him. They bend the knee. And then Katara tells him, hey, in case you don't get the point, they want you to be the avatar. <laughs> and then he does he does like a little dance. He, he, he does something that signifies that he agrees, I guess, that he's taking it. And then we just get, get thrown to the, the credits with not even a, you know, to be continued or a Aang will Oh, there's will definitely back. a like, yeah, Aang will return <laughs> in the last airbender <laughs> civil war. Uh, <laughs> but we get... Some girl, I guess, is the daughter of oh, yeah, 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 the, yeah. the Fire Lord, and she's she's gonna prevent this little kid from learning how to learn Earth and Fire. So that's obviously something that if we had watched the anime, we probably would have been privy to what was coming with right. this Azula character. But for us, it's just kind of like, uh, okay, is is this a Marvel movie? Is it gonna go on another hour and a half? <laughs> and then it just ends. Like, oh, okay, I guess this is. What was to come, but it never came. Yeah. I mean, they, they do tease her because, I mean, she is Dev Patel's sister, and they mention her a couple of times during the movie. It's just that, you know, who would have known that they were setting up the the adversary for the next movie, uh, which, again, sadly, we didn't get. Yeah. Airbender interrupt us. It definitely was from lack of uh, box office return. As I said, $320 million. So what was the reason, Julio, we never got... I don't know, the first airbender. <laughs> the next airbender. The next airbender. Rise of the airbender, Alex. I, I think that maybe Shyamalan saw the reviews and he's he just turned his back on it. And said, he All said, right. you don't deserve it. Yep. You don't want it? Fine. I'll make it, but you'll never see it. And his kids are the only ones that know how the story ends. 
Julio, my final note in my notepad was, it's not good, but it's better than the happening. <laughs> and I think that's fair grounds to carry us over into real talk. Let's go to real talk. The Avatar is dead. If he was here, he would protect us. My name is Ong. And I'm the Avatar. I ran away, but I'm back now. It's time for you to stop doing this! The Avatar would have to be an airbender. Are you an airbender boy? <laughs> Leave him alone! How is he doing that? I don't want to hurt anyone. All airbenders should be dead. Kill him! Firebenders! Let's take care of him! Okay, everybody can help us now! All right, and we are back. But before we go into real talk, first we're going to do PP, our patron pitch. This is a segment where we let patrons know what to expect on our patron channel. And this is also where non-patrons find out what they're missing out on. Maybe this convinces them to join the Contrarian Supplements family. This time around, well, we're starting this Shamal Anthology uh, in July. July is Dan Brennick month, as far as patrons are concerned. That means that Dan has picked our patron-exclusive episode, and that's going to be on the movie Ad Astra, the recent, fairly recent, Brad Pitt space adventure. Very excited, because it finally given me an excuse to watch this movie. Awesome. I was about to ask you, Alex, if you had seen it before. Mm-mm. Okay, well, patrons, you, you get to hear Alex and my uh, reactions to that movie uh, sometime this month. Uh, also, Dan has picked our bonus episode for July for the official feed, and that's going to be on Extinction, which is a movie I know very little about other than it stars Michael Pena. How about you, Alex? I have never even heard of that movie. Fantastic. We're going back row blind into that one. It's also fairly recent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's a that's a, one of those Netflix releases, I think. Oh, uh, hell yeah. Lizzie Kaplan. It's on. Yes. So you have that in your future, as well as the deleted clips that they make it into the episodes that we're releasing, and also our pre-recording notes. And then, of course, After Hours. The segment where we tell you about other things that we watched, or that we played, or that we've read. Uh, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? Man, it's been a while since we recorded in After Hours, so I'm trying to remember... If I've played any video games or anything new since then, I mean, I'm sure I have. You're like maybe 5% through your Pandora box? (laughs) If that. Julio, I am bringing to the table, I wanted to talk about a movie called Cats Don't Dance, but I think we're going to save that for a bonus episode because I think it merits some interesting discussion. Uh, Is it the sequel to Be My Cat? (laughs) It Maybe a prequel because it's from 1997. (laughs) Warner Brothers kids movie from the late 90s that is just fantastic and has kind of an interesting story surrounding it uh the movie itself wouldn't really play into what we do because i think it's like at 74 percent. even the plot would be kind of difficult to do so i think we'll save that for a bonus episode in the future so for my topic of discussion on this edition of after hours we're going to be talking about the 2009 last house on the left is it yeah 2009 (laughs) the remake with jesse pinkman yeah, recent rabbit hole led me to this movie as I had no idea the just what the fuckery that is the cast of that movie. 
anyone who knows me or even longtime listeners of the podcast know I abhor the original Last House on the Left. I think it's one of the most overrated and just not worthy of the praise it gets films ever. That's basically your qualifier. That's what I'm leading with going into this discussion. But we'll be talking about the 2009 Last House on the Left and my thoughts on that. Julio, what about yourself? Well, speaking of overrated, Alex, uh, anybody who follows me on Twitter, <laughs> my personal account, and I know you saw this because you made a couple comments, probably saw my uh, live tweet of my long time coming rewatch of Gladiator. I have a lot to say, and I will say it in the After Hours segment. I also rewatched just basically back-to-back Starship Troopers, and uh, I live-tweeted that one as well. I don't do live-tweets. That's not my thing. It was part of a... It was a dual commitment that I made with a friend. Uh, actually, we brought her up recently. Uh, we, we read Mel Killingsworth, her opinion on, on Getting Square. So, all sorts of tie-ins to Contrarian's lore here. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about Gladiator, make you mad hear what you have to say about it, and then a little bit more about Starship Troopers. All this in the Contrarians After Hours segment. More Starship Troopers. Just can't get away. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's the common ground between the two as well. Spencer Treat Clark, who plays Justin in Last House on the Left, and who played Lucius in... The kid? Gladiator? Yeah, the little kid. Huh. He's Again, also, the connections. <laughs> the he's also the little kid in uh, Last House on the Left. He's just like 10 years older. And he's also a little kid in Starship Troopers. <laughs> Man, he's fuck a little you. You had, you, you had me for a second. I was like rethinking. I was like, wait, is that kid in Starship Troopers? <laughs> but yes, for less than the price of a Big Mac, you can have just uncut and unrestricted access to We the Contrarians. And if you're a vegetarian, shit, I don't know. <laughs> Less than a small fry. Small salad. Small salad. Man, fast food places even sell salads anymore. I think Chick-fil-A stopped. And if Chick-fil-A stopped, then you know everybody stopped. That that, that was the last holdout in the game. <laughs> I mean, you could count your pennies up and you'd be able to get access to We the Contrarians. And then also, you enter yourself into Contrarians canon. You tell us what we're going to watch and what we're going to talk about. And that goes uh, a bit too far sometimes, but we're still committed to doing it as uh, one of our upcoming patron picks has got me full hot, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Any of this sounds good. If you want more information, just check patreon.com slash contrarian prime that has all our information. And if you have any questions about it, just message us. But now with that taken care of, Alex, take us into real talk. The last airbender as mentioned previously, released on July 1st of 2010, a budget of $150 million, box office return of a little bit under, a hair under $320 million. Julio, that sounds very good uh, until you realize that there was an additional $130 million spent in advertising. So <laughs> legitimately, almost the entire cost of the movie was doubled in advertising. That's weird. I guess I remember that. I remember it being very heavily advertised. The thing I remember was that it wasn't advertised necessarily as an M. Night Shyamalan movie. It was just The Last Airbender, and it was going to be the launching of this new film franchise. I mean, yes, M. Night Shyamalan presents, and from the director of Such and Such is on there, but you know what I mean? Like His other mm-hmm. movies always seem to be very front-loaded with 
M. Night Shyamalan. Like I said, I have vague memories of when it came out, not really knowing what it is, and I still don't particularly know much about the subject material. Um, (laughs) You've watched the movie, you still don't know what it is. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. The film was originally envisioned as a trilogy of films based on the three seasons of the series, but due to the unpopularity and low profits of the first film, the planned trilogy was left in doubt for years and ultimately canceled in favor of a live-action remake of the animated series for Netflix. So that's the Wikipedia, the more direct-to-the-source IMDb. Uh, the film was intended, as we mentioned, to be the first part of a trilogy. Uh, the film ultimately made a modest profit at the box office. Like we said, it looks good until you realize they spent $280 million on the movie. Therefore, it just uh, Paramount was like, yeah, this probably ain't worth it. And then, oh, shit, I... I'm sure I could read more into it, but I know there was some controversy as far as the casting goes. Yeah. I felt like it was an Aloha type situation where people Mm -hmm. were upset about the characters in the story. If I understand correctly are of Asian descent and here it really seemed to be kind of, do you know more about that than me? I'm kind of tripping over my words. I feel like I remember that being a controversy though. No, it definitely is. Like they, they accused of whitewashing. Well, here's the thing, and, and I was actually I was I considered making a joke about it on Contreras Corner, which was rooted in truth because I mean I haven't seen the show, so really I don't know. I know that if you look at the art, you know, they definitely don't look like white people. <laughs> when you watch the movie, they are white people, you know, and uh, at least, you know, the, the, the siblings. So my joke in Contreras Corner was going to be about how like, well, animation is a race on its own and you know they just they can translate it any way you want whatever probably, the case. probably best you kept that in the holster <laughs> yes <laughs> well it just it never it never grew organically <laughs> i mean i understand you know it's like they look a certain of a certain nationality or you know race on the show and then when they make the movie i mean that's the guy uh Sokka, Suka, he's a uh, he's one of the vampires from Twilight. <laughs> it's like why not? You know, it, they were not casting superstars. That's the the thing. Like I remember, what was it? A couple of years ago, when they made the Ghost in the Shell movie, and it, there was like an uproar, right? Because they they cast Scarlett Johansson as the main character, and I haven't seen the original Ghost in the Shell, but I, I guess my understanding was that they there was you know there were the the whitewashing accusations is like she's not meant to be a white woman. Yeah. But the argument was like, well, it's Scarlett Johansson. So when you have Scarlett Johansson in your movie, your movie gets made. Whereas like if you cast somebody that's racially accurate, then maybe you don't get the funding. And it's, you know, that doesn't mean that it's okay, but it's, you know, it, it makes it for, it makes for a complex issue. Right, like I can see why somebody would say, "Listen, do you want?" There's the movie logic to be made? in that. It's wrong logic, but there's logic non- nonetheless. Exactly. Now, one of the lesser-known vampires from Twilight, like I don't know, I, I don't know that that was the, the thing that was funding the movie. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of weird that he would choose to cast unknowns that did not look the way that the TV show portrayed the characters. Who? I mean, how does that happen? And I know that that was you know over a decade ago. How, you said 15 years now? 11, 11 years tomorrow. Yeah. So, you know, 11 years ago, maybe it wasn't, uh, you know, the climate was not as sensitive as it is now, but you still would have thought that Shyamalan and his team would have thought, why not just cast Asian people? I don't know. The point Definitely. of that, to that point of this whole casting controversy, which most of it is unraveling in front of my eyes right now, I just remember hearing about it when it came out, <laughs> but... um. There's no, sorry, 
there's no star in this movie. This movie was built on M Night Shyamalan, and it's the live adaptation of The Last Airbender. So mm-hmm. exactly to your point, there's no reason they had to take such liberties with the casting that that just makes absolutely no sense. If like fucking Brad Pitt or you know Leonardo DiCaprio she wanted to play Ang. <laughs> Yeah, then then you say okay, let's let's figure out what we can do here to get around these hurdles. But <laughs> maybe we make him the second to last Airbender. It's just <laughs> like tomorrow if Idris Elba or someone's like for the point purpose of this analogy. Yeah, if Idris Elba's like, I want to be Pee Wee Herman in a movie. You figure out how to make him Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> for the purposes of this, none of these people are at the level of an Elba, Pitt, or a DiCaprio. So yeah. To your point, that it makes even less sense, and I'm I'm starting now <laughs> in real time to understand where the frustration mounted from. Um, you want to hear something <laughs> very just like <laughs> distressing and upsetting? Uh, on the set of his movie Slumdog Millionaire, whenever Dev Patel had some free time on the set, he would watch an episode of the cartoon series to prepare for his role as Zuko. <laughs> in theory. And the idea of him doing that in 2008 prepping, that is not distressing or, you know, just <laughs> deflating. But the idea that, I mean, go back, it's been years. It was in our conceptual days. But I think if I, I know I was, I talked about Slumdog Millionaire, that it is everything people say about it. And it's as easy as, it's as easy to make fun of as the day is long. But God, that's a great movie. It's just, it, the ending, everything about it is just like, perfect it ain't a best picture winner it shouldn't have won all the shit it won that year but it's just a great movie and it's it's a good crowd pleaser exactly that's that's exactly right but to think like the emotional highs he had to go to and emotional lows and like the frame of mind he had to be in in some of the parts of that movie to like be sharing his brain space and preparing for what would become (laughs) this i'm sure in hindsight he's just like yeah i probably i shouldn't have uh, put so much effort into that because he's he's been i think he's gone on public record as far as saying he did not care for the movie and the way it turned out um julio we've talked about this so many times before and what i want to get into here to lead us off is when does it become not salvageable but before we do that being that this <laughs> being that this movie is five percent on rotten tomatoes that that does mean there are those real life contrarians and people that like it and like I said, I didn't like it, but I'm probably going to say some things that people are going to construe as me liking it. So let's get like the really crazy hyperbolic shit out of the way first to kind of set the table. Yeah, the people that that want you to think that they liked it, they went and put a, a red tomato on their tomato meter score. Kevin N. LaForest from the Montreal Film Journal says, Shyamalan has taken what could have been a big, flashy, generic Hollywood production and made it wholly his own. I mean, can't argue with that. Yeah, that's in theory, that's correct. <laughs> uh, Scott Bowles from USA Today has he hasn't mastered the craft yet, but M. Night Shyamalan may be onto something with this action movie thing. What? The, how many fucking chances are you? How many years does he get? <laughs> that's so condescending, too. <laughs> He's made like what ten movies? <laughs> uh, for real. And then let's close with Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Crazed, who says. Is it a masterpiece? Oh, God, no. But I'm intrigued to see where the next film goes. Whether Felix is still waiting, or if he finally broke down and decided to watch the anime. Julio, I think the best place to start with this, because we may have people listening to this that are devotees of the anime, and I feel it's appropriate, especially in my case, 
to set the groundwork in saying, I don't know shit about anime, and I don't know, I know even less about The Last Airbender. Coming into this movie, like I said when we started uh, Contrarian's Corner, all I just was expecting a bad M. Night Shyamalan movie. The good news is it wasn't an M. Night Shyamalan movie. It was, <laughs> it was just like a very generic action movie. So I want to say that, and like the things that people, my understanding, people get upset about, come from a strong, like the fan base that's educated about it. And like I said, talking about that casting shit and reading about it, yeah, I understand getting upset about that. That's perfectly justified. But I didn't have any of that baggage coming into it, so all I could do was just kind of judge the hour and forty minutes that was in front of me. I am on the same side of it. I like I said, I'm not even. I wouldn't say that I'm even familiar with the show i mean like i said my wife has watched all of it and actually it was funny because i was watching the last i want to say the last 40 minutes maybe of the movie it's just the big battle and all that stuff maybe a little before that and i was in, in the living room and she was kind of doing stuff around but every time she walked into the living room and she would kind of pay attention to what was happening she would just start correcting things or mentioning just what was wrong it was like 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 fact checking trump when he's talking it was like <laughs> nope wrong lie no apparently they don't even say the name of the avatar correctly because i guess the movie says ang but it's supposed to be ong or i don't know but it was i was just like all right i get it it's not accurate <laughs> uh so i guess where the argument about the faithfulness to the source material begins and ends for me is yes i believe you <laughs> it doesn't yeah. you know just based on the on the very few bits of animation that i've seen and uh, and also the tone of the show, from what I've gathered, because you know, like I said, my my wife sometimes would be watching it, and I kind of walk by. The show seems a lot more lighthearted, uh, just a lot more whimsical, and this had nothing of that. Yeah, it seemed like just based on the modicum of little things that I read, it sounded like the show was way more rooted in like like you said, almost comedy and like a lighthearted appeal, where the, that's virtually non-existent in this. Yeah, so so just from that, I mean, I am more than willing to just take anything that a, a fan of the show tells me at face value and be like, yeah, I, I believe you because <laughs> it this doesn't just with what little I know, it doesn't it really doesn't look like a good adaptation. Uh, but that said, I'm like you, like when I watch it, I'm just judging it on its own as, as a movie, not even as a Shyamalan movie, it, because I. I guess I am past the point where I have an expectation when I go to see a, an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Yeah. I think that I kind of lost that probably around the time of the happening, probably, you know, like the first time that I watched it, not not our recent rewatch. So watching it as just a, sort of this fantasy epic, it's not good. <laughs> it's really boring. And I, I am curious because you've said it twice now that it's better than the happening. And I am not sure I agree. So, so walk me through that judgment call on your end. The quickest and shortest answer is the visual effects in this are good enough for me, and I was not mm -hmm. expecting that. So it was just like, cool. At least like me watching this, there's things that kind of justify me hanging around, which is like, oh, these guys are controlling water. And uh, Asif Mandivi got killed in an <laughs> insanely brutal way for what is conceivably a family movie. Yeah, it's not relevant necessarily to this, but I, I want to go back to something just a minute ago. When does, for you, when does taking creative liberties with your source material become too much? You know, like you said, uh, characters' names being pronounced wrong, characters' just overall presence and 
like their motivations and just what you've come to expect from a book or a cartoon or, you know, the subject material, when does that go too far for you? Because, you know, the quickest thing I could point to is like X-Men, the original, when they gave Jubilee's story to Rogue. And mm-hmm. obviously that movie did well and there's a lot of people that revere it and love it. I still think it's it's great. It started a, a you could make the argument the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe would not exist if that movie had tanked. But as a fan of the source material, I always am like, yeah, but it's kind of weird they gave uh, the Jubilee story to Rogue. So when I hear stuff like that about movies like this of people that were true fans of the source material taking umbrage with this adaptation of it, that, that makes sense to me. Sometimes people go too far, in my opinion, of like completely writing something off because a character didn't do something exactly the same way. But like, I know it's such a, there's not really a line you can draw, but I think, you know, the question I'm trying to ask here, when, when in, in your opinion, Julio, for you, when does it go to the point where it's like, all right, hold on now, this is getting too far out of whack. <laughs> well, I think that it is when you lose the, the what makes that property special, which is not the little details. I mean, the little details are important, but there is something at the heart of whatever it is that you're adapting. And I, I think that for the most part, the movies that nail that, they get away with whatever changes they brought. Like like you were just saying, right? Mm. They changed, they gave Jubilee's story to Rogue. And yeah, it sucks, but because you like the movie overall, because I think they, they successfully capture what made the X-Men special, you can roll with it. But I think that if you, for example, and not that I want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but let's say like Man of Steel, right? I think that people that dislike Man of Steel on a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. They dislike it mainly because they feel that that Superman is not their Superman. And that is a lot harder to to recover from. So if if you're watching a movie and, you know, well, that's not my Superman, those are not my X-Men, then you start picking it apart. Because once that fails, then you can also point out that, well, they changed this and they changed that and they changed that. So, so it seems like that's the case here. The, the majority of the fan base, if not the resounding overall were offended because it didn't feel like what their last airbender was. That's basically my takeaway from what we've read and talked about so far. Yeah, and it feels, I mean, even not being familiar with the the source material, this feels so rushed. I mean, apparently this is the first season of the show, and mm -hmm. you can tell that they're just compressing all those story beats into an hour and 40 minutes to where, you know, nobody really gets to get a chance to develop. You know, the princess and uh, Sokka, you know, they're supposed to have this big romance, and it happens mostly on voiceover. They have, like, maybe one scene where they talk about their families, and then the next time that we see them, you know, she's sacrificing herself. So I imagine that that's the kind of stuff that has... A lot more emotional resonance when you've had several episodes building, building it up, and, and you know all that stuff that happens in the movie feels like that. Not only rushed, but it even before all the stuff we talked about with like the liberties with the story and the casting and whatnot, it really just felt like a an overly dramatic Hollywood adaptation of something that wasn't. You know, the fans would describe it as epic, but you know it it just seemed way too much. Like a lot of the way the the scenes were presented and just the the constant sense of urgency that's there. But again, you know, it seems it was a movie that was an hour and 40 minutes long and they tried to cram in almost like two movies worth of plot into it. Mm -hmm. And it really, it suffers. The acting is not good. 
Dev Patel nope. is a talented kid, um, and I think he tries to do what he can. It's just such odd casting. And then the little kid. Jake Lloyd. <laughs> the little boy Noah Ringer that plays Aang. Again, I hate to be mean to kids. Not, obviously, he's 22 now, so hopefully the world's been easy on him. But that's the thing, man. God, that, that makes me feel bad. I was about to say how bad he was in this, but just thinking about how bad this movie did, like critically and everything, and he probably got made fun of where we went to school about it. So it's like I, I don't want to – I'm sure that fucking sucked. So I feel bad saying that he's not good, but he's, he's just not. It's Yeah, but he, he was a kid, so it wasn't his fault. It was Shyamalan's fault because <laughs> he directed this shit. Like, you know, True. He, he decided – how he was shooting it and he decided how to direct his performance and you know i mean it's not the first time we've made this argument in the end it's it's on the director's shoulders what makes it to that cut and uh yeah he just this is what he ended up with this is what he decided to go with i feel less guilty talking about uh the two actors that play the siblings because i looked them up on imdb and they've gone on to have careers i mean they're not superstars but obviously it's not like last airbender was the end of their hollywood experiment i mean they they survived and they went on it to be on other things uh, my sister i was just gonna say real quick my sister walked past the screen when i was watching this and she thought ang was played by miranda cosgrove thought like ang yeah like she walked <laughs> not, by and it was not like Katara. no 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 ang she's like did they cast miranda <laughs> cosgrove and like shave her head bald for this i was like <laughs> No, she's like it looks like her. I was like, okay. I mean, I did not expect that comparison. Did you say the the Suka Soka Suka? He was in Twilight. Yeah, he's a uh, Jasper, which I only know that because, like I said, I looked up his filmography. What a baller, um, dude! The uh, the other movie that came out the same day as the Last Airbender was Eclipse. So he was just like <laughs> rolling in the dough that weekend. I hope he enjoyed it. <laughs> Burned out quick, like a bottle rocket. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the the actress that plays Katara. I, I mean, I just did a quick look through the filmography, and I know she's been in Bates Motel apparently, and just recently, and a bunch of things. So you know, I don't feel bad saying, "Hey, they were not ready." I mean, and again, it's partly Shyamalan because it it's just wooden performances. And I was thinking, I actually made a note. I made a real talk note when I was you know watching the movie, which was just thinking of Star Wars again. I mean, I spent the entire episode talking about comparing it to Star Wars, but in the sense that the performance in Star Wars, you know, they're very specific to that kind of genre, like the space adventure, and they're they're not wooden, but they're not, but they're big, and it feels like the performances in this movie are just like one degree removed from that to where it doesn't work. If they were having as much fun as Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher seem to be having on screen in Star Wars in the original trilogy, I think that this movie would be so much easier to watch. It would be just much lighter. and But instead, it's like you were saying, it takes itself so seriously, and, and that's reflected in the performances. The, the poor girl that plays Katara, I mean, she looks like she's on the verge of tears almost every scene. And every line that she delivers is just so heavy yeah. yeah and then the guy that plays her brother i mean he's he's always like and i don't know if he was maybe trying to imitate the cartoon uh you know like his character in the show but he he looks kind of like cartoonish like his eyes are always like wide open and he looks like he's ready to explode and it, i don't know it just it doesn't work and 
again, that was Shyamalan saying, okay, that's good. You know, keep that up. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to do this through the entire movie. They're like the main problem. You know, like uh, the, the older actors, I think they're they're a little better. Like they, they fare a little better because I guess they're, they're more experienced. So uh, the guy that plays the uncle, I think he's fine. And then uh, Cliff Curtis, it's okay. You know, their dialogue is terrible, but at least... Yeah. You can tell that these are you, with them. You can tell they're good actors with bad dialogue. With the with the younger cast, you're like, oh, they they're not good. You know, they might be good in the future, but right now they're not good. And on top of that, they have bad dialogue. Leads me into my next talking point, Julio. I made the joke about when something becomes unsalvageable. We know by this point, and we would have known by this point, but we know definitively by now. M Night Shyamalan thinks what he's making is good. <laughs> and that's fine. But the question becomes, when do you think the players involved with this kind of give up hope? Like, you're talking about, like, the people that were in production. Actors, production people, everybody. When when do they abandon ship, or do they think they hold on until the last minute? I would imagine. You think Dev Patel went to the on... premiere this optimistic, is what I'm asking. Yes, because I would imagine uh, that, yes, because even after the happening... Uh, I, I imagine that they just had trust on Shyamalan. You know, like, there's so many moving parts when you're making a movie, and I'm speaking just from my limited experience with what I've, <laughs> when I've dabbled in the field, and then extrapolating that to, like, 10,000 times more complicated productions, you know, what, what it would take to make The Last Airbender. And yeah. I imagine that you are, especially considering the special effects and all the stuff, you can be, like, you're Dev Patel, and you're like, all right, well, I'm doing the best I can, and I gotta trust that the person that's putting all this together has a picture in their mind, you know, and they're seeing it come together and they're like, okay, this is good. We're, we're in good shape. So I would imagine that they didn't find out what the movie was like until they watched it. Put together. Just, just started like sinking into their seats little by little. Like, oh man, yes. this is not good. Like uh, the disaster artist, you know, they have that scene. <laughs> is it Zac Efron? I think that realizes that he's in a bad movie. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Speaking of which, Zac Efron auditioned for the part of Suka, and M. Night Shyamalan offered him the role. But he had to turn it down due to scheduling conflicts. Life intervened. God took the wheel. <laughs> scheduling conflicts, a.k.a. he read the script. So that worked out for the better. You know, honestly, I don't. I thought I'd have more to say about this, but I, I really don't. It's just, it's not good. But like I said, there are movies that I could talk about that I have a lot of... I took a lot into it. I'm trying to think of fucking Wolverine, you know, the X-Men Origins or X3 mm -hmm. for God's sake. So there are like movies like this that come from a property that I am very, very attached to. And so I can absolutely understand the heartbreak. And then that turns to just contempt and anger that you have at a filmmaker for taking something you love and kind of just killing it in front of your eyes. I, I get that but it's it's nothing i have with this so for me it was just kind of it took me a while to get through this honestly i think i paused it maybe three or four times and took a break because it it's not paced well and mm -hmm. the acting's bad like i said the visuals are good the score is very good so there are things i can be complimentary about but it is not a good movie that being said i am much more likely to watch this again than i am the happening that's the one that keeps coming up over and over again so well, it makes sense because yeah. we, we just did it too but uh, I, and then it will I, that's come up again split, as we continue <laughs> down the path of Shyamalan, the happening, and I'm sure the last Airbender will come back up. So, uh, you disagree though? You're you're gonna go watch Marky Mark figure out the plants again? 
Yes, because it's easier to make fun of it. With Last Airbender, I couldn't even muster like the energy to laugh at it. That's it a was good just, point. You know, I with Last Airbender, I felt bad. I felt bad for the people that were in it. I feel bad for for the actors. I didn't feel bad for Shyamalan, but I did feel bad somewhat for for the fans of the show, and but mostly the people that were on screen because. I wouldn't accuse them of not trying. With the happening, I don't feel bad for Mark Wahlberg or for Zoe Chanel or anybody there because they were grown ass adults. <laughs> they, you feel bad for the, John Leguizamo? No, no, he knew what he was getting into. I think with the with the happening, it's the opposite. I think with the happening, they had a much better idea of what movie they were in, and they were just like, "Well, fuck it." I mean, it, it still boils down to. Shyamalan let it happen. Shyamalan told yeah. him that it was okay. But I, I, I'm much more comfortable making fun of... Uh, also, it has to do with the levels of success, right? I mean, Wahlberg, Zoe de Chanel, even Leguizamo, I mean, they're, they're fine. They're going to be fine whether I like the happening or not. So, yeah, I'll call them out on their shit. <laughs> they're terrible in that movie. And I'll and I'll laugh. I'll point and laugh at them. But I, I don't feel the urge, like, comfortable doing it with Last Airbender. With Last Airbender, it's just a drag and it's just so slow and the one thing that they have in common beyond the fact that you know their movies i don't think are good it's just that they also make me question Shyamalan's instincts as a filmmaker which is absolutely crazy because as we will see in the Shyamalan anthology i mean he's made some really good movies and, and when you watch something like and granted, I haven't rewatched them yet, so maybe maybe I'll change my mind. But from what I remember, watching The Sixth Sense, watching Science, watching Unbreakable, this is a guy that knows how to make a movie and knows how to make a really good movie. And then for him to do something like The Happening or Lester Bender, it's like, man, that's crazy. And with Lester Bender, I'll give him this, this, that it's not the genre that he seemed to be comfortable with. So you watch this and you're like, he doesn't know how to shoot an action sequence in a fantasy movie. In Gutierrez Corner, we kind of like gave props to that initial big battle that's all one, sh- you know, uninterrupted shot. That's, you know, the fire people are fighting the water people and the and the earth people. But it's just so, it's not exciting. There's mm-hmm. a there's a moment where the camera goes to <laughs> a group of like five or six earth vendors and they do this really complicated dance and then this rock floats almost in slow motion towards the fire people. And it's like, what is this? This this is not a well-paced battle. I think they're both as bad. That's a great point for such a movie that is just encased in, uh, or engulfed, excuse me, in action. Nothing seems exciting. Nope. It's just all like, okay, eh, that happened. But that's a You brought a perspective to that I did not think about at all. I was just thinking about like, me watching the movie by myself, what I'd be more likely to do. And the the clear answer is I don't want to watch either of them ever again. But <laughs> <Right. laughs> the happening, you're right, is a lot easier to make fun of. And there's things you can laugh at. Whereas this, it's it's that bad that goes, it dips below funny. <laughs> I'm starting to realize now as we discuss this why it, it's so lowly rated. Watching it by myself earlier today, I was like, all right, it's bad. It's not that bad. But it's it's really bad. <laughs> It's like that guy said, that that genre of movies that are so bad, they're bad. Yeah, at first I was like, what is he talking about? Now it's making all the sense in the world to me. I, I think I probably, I, I think it's as bad as The Happening. It's just that it's harder to watch. <laughs> no one wins in that discussion when you got to compare something to The Happening. So <laughs> in the year of 2011, it did win the Golden Raspberry for Worst Picture. I would 
refute that as one of the nominees was Sex and the City 2. And <laughs> that movie I hated. The Last Airbender <laughs> is just bad. But wait, craft-wise, are you saying that Sex and the City 2 is... There you it go. It makes less sense? That's the point I'm making. Talk about a subject material I'm passionate about and films that were made from them that I just detest. Uh-huh. That is Sex and the City. So there you go. I can relate to that. If someone came to me and told me all this shit that I think about Sex and the City too about The Last Airbender, I'll be like, I get that, man. They <laughs> they betrayed all of Samantha's morals and you know made Charlotte just a punchline. And Carrie ends up with Big, even though it makes no fucking sense. So it <laughs> with it, I get it. But then, if somebody told you, "Hey, man, I haven't watched a single episode of the show, and I watched it, and it was an okay movie." I'd be like, get out. <laughs> no, I would have the exact same reaction that whoever is a fan of The Last Airbender is listening to me saying, it was okay. They're probably like just like seething because <laughs> it's a discussion where I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. I know what I've seen, and that's the hour and 40-minute movie M. Night Shyamalan made. With Sex and the City, if someone's like, I like Sex and the City. I've only seen the second movie. I would be like... <laughs> There's like a no, decade's okay. worth of shit that predate that. <laughs> okay, but but th- there is uh, that is I think maybe w- one final bit of conversation worth exploring, which is like, yes, you have an obligation as, and I'm gonna play devil's advocate because I really I do agree with you, but I think that as a filmmaker that's making a that's adapting a property mm-hmm. to you know to the big screen, you have an obligation to the people that already love that property. But you also have an obligation to expand in that audience, right? Absolutely. Like, and, and so I think that that's the trick. You have to figure out a way to make an, uh, a Last Airbender movie that pleases the people that love the show, but at the same time is welcoming to the people that are coming into this fresh, that know nothing. And uh, if you take that to Sex and the City, I guess it's the same thing. Like You want to make a movie that it's going to be great for the people that watch the five seasons of the show, but also a movie that maybe also kind of stands on its own for the people that are new. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is I watched, you know, I haven't seen the show. I, I screened Sex in the City and I was not, I mean, my reaction was kind of similar to Last Airbender in the sense that I had, I have no dog in this fight. Like, <laughs> All right. <laughs> this movie happened. I just took what was happening. I laughed. You know, most of the time when I think they wanted me to laugh, but I had no emotional reaction. Like, I didn't care if they were if they ended up together or not. You know, Carrie and Big and uh, uh, Charlotte Shattered Pants, I think, halfway through the movie. And I was like, all right. I mean, I guess that's what the character is like. <laughs> to, be, to be perfectly honest, uh, Carrie and Big end up together at the end of the show, which was way more heartbreaking than, like, them in the movie. God, I hate the ending of that show so much, Julio. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much. Um, so, the to put a positive bow on this, who has done that the best, and why was it Sam Raimi with Spider-Man? Ah, well, it, but it's also, I think maybe there's the character of Spider-Man, the mythos of Spider-Man, they're more accessible. There's so, far more universality with Spider-Man mm-hmm. than there is with Ong Last or Ong or whatever he's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wasn't kidding, man. I made like some snide comments about it in the first portion. I just wanted more about like what's the bison's name? Furry. <laughs> so Appa. 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 No, Appa. Appa. <laughs> yeah, give me more of that dude. He looks fluffy and very cu- cuddly and 
fun. It's hard. I'm not going to act like it's not hard to do that, to take uh, intellectual property with years and years of backstory and a very passionate fan base and then just make a good feature-length motion picture from it. It's hard to do, but it is doable. You just It takes the right kind of mind to craft it, and you have someone like M. Night Shyamalan taking something. When M. Night Shyamalan is a guy so set in his own ways and making movies the way he wants to and only that way and never like leaning or like allowing any type of wiggle room, that, of course, this was just a recipe for disaster. Yet on top of that, it's an anime property. Those motherfuckers are more vicious and passionate than like wrestling fans, so it's... <laughs> In my opinion, speaking of this 11 years later, and if I had been educated at the time, it's the exact same thing I would have said. There's no way this was going to end up good. There was, It was never in the cards for this project to end up good, given what it was about and who had control of it. So for that, I think I gave The Happening an F. I would have had to. I can't imagine you giving it more than that. Is an F plus a thing? <laughs> That is your scoring system, so don't ask me. I mean, like, in the scholastic world, I think once you get an F, you just get an F. It's not like you get a 59 and you get an F+. plus. It doesn't really matter. You fail no matter what. Um, that would be awesome. I'm sure I was such a condescending little shit. One of my teachers gave me an F+, plus at some point in time. But I'm really having a hard time giving an F and not a D-, minus, dude. The score and the visual effects are really, really good. I'm going to say D minus, but with the the asterisk that I have absolutely zero desire to ever rewatch this again. But I was very impressed with the visual effects and the score. So D minus for The Last Airbender. Julio, is this is this in the half star club or is it getting a full one? No, no. Like you have to be really, really, I think, just offensive for me to give you half a star. You have to have uh, Hulk Hogan as the lead in it. Yes. <laughs> and have a, a whole a whole gag about Dookie. So I gave the happening one star. So, you know, it didn't make the half star club and that feels right. And it feels right for Last Airbender 2. Just one star. It's really bad. I don't ever want to watch it again. I feel bad for the people involved. And it's even like, I, <laughs> part of me wants to give it half a star for, you know, just grading it on the Shyamalan curve. I don't know. I mean, I mean he seems like a nice guy. He I don't know if you've ever seen his Twitter or like his interviews. He has... He comes across as having like a true enthusiasm for storytelling, and you know, yeah. eh, eh, which makes it even crazier that he could have such blind spots. Like, I don't need him to, you know, get on YouTube and record an apology video for Last Airbender. Maybe he should because it, you know it seems like the people that really care about that movie, you know, they he really upset them. But I don't know. I I, I guess we can say that he acknowledges limitations because he hasn't dabbled in that kind of genre, that kind of movie since then, you know, and maybe that was him saying, yeah, that's not my forte and I should stay away from trying to do that kind of stuff. At the same time, it's just like, man, you could do so much better. It's, I don't know. To me, it's just crazy that he couldn't tell how badly this was going, uh, but you never know. I mean, maybe, maybe he knew and he, all he was doing was trying to keep the ship afloat so everybody would get paid at least. At this point though, I can't believe that he thinks they're bad. His movies. I I am like I can't. If this was the follow up to the Sixth Sense, maybe I would be like, okay, he just made a stinker and just it kind of fell apart. The he felt overwhelmed, but you know, this was ten years after the Sixth Sense and all the things he made. I have to believe he thought it was good. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that he definitely went in expecting to make a good movie, but it's so different from everything he'd done before that I, if you told me that halfway through production, he realized he was way in over his head and it was just a matter of like, okay, let's just get something done so we can have something to show, but <laughs> this is not good. I, I would believe you, but I don't know. I mean, you, you've seen Late in the Water, right? I watched that like once in college. He plays like Jesus in it, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, there's this this book I read a while ago. I might have brought it up on the show before, but I know for sure I bring it up whenever somebody talks about Shyamalan and Late in the Water because it's, it's a book about the making of Late in the Water. Uh, this journalist had full access to the production and you know talked to Shyamalan. He was there the entire time. And uh, the way that he depicts Shyamalan, you know, he he seemed 100% convinced that he was making a great movie. The biggest, I guess, hiccup was that he cast, you know, he wrote the movie for Bryce Dallas Howard. But when Bryce Dallas Howard showed up to to shoot, she was a superstar. You know, she was a nobody in when uh, The Village, when he cast in The Village, she was, she was an unknown. But then after The Village, she was a big deal. And so when she came to shoot Lady in the Water, suddenly she was like an actress and she had like quirks and she had opinions and <laughs> I don't know you know so, so that seemed to complicate things but so the book ends with the movie done but it doesn't really talk about what happened after the movie was uh released and how it didn't really set the world on fire because it was supposed to be his comeback after after mm-hmm. the village and uh the guy in, in the book like there was a his contact information was there the, the, the author he had an email and I emailed him after I read the book and I was like hey I loved your book but uh did you ever like what happened after the movie came out? You know, like because Shyamalan was convinced that it was great, and so how did he take the the, the reception from the critics and all that stuff? And he wrote back saying, like, you know, he seemed pretty unfazed. He was just happy, you know. He was he stood by the movie he had made in his mind. It was like, well, he did everything right, and well, they didn't get it, and that's that's that. And so I wonder if that's also how he takes Last Surrender. I mean, that's an option, right? He mm-hmm. he saw that it failed, and it's like, well. Too bad, can't win them all, but I did everything right. Show business, you know, there's no one single success formula. It's either that or he he realized at some point that he was making a stinker, but there was no way out of it. Like, what do you do once you've spent already so much money <laughs> and you already have half a bad movie in the can? Yeah, bad proposition around. I, you know, if we ever had a chance to have beers with, uh, with M. Night Shyamalan, that might be the end, like the, the, the big, the last chapter of the Shyamalan anthology is just us interviewing... Shyamalan over Zoom, and uh, and then we can ask him, how do you feel, honestly, about Last Airbender? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It, even for him, it stands out as like a, a shit show. So I think it's the appropriate movie to start with here as our Shyamalan anthology carries on, and we'll have our retrospective discussion of Mr. Knight by the end of this, but it's not a good the movie. M, the M stands for Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Just spelled improper. God bless. That, that is it. All right. So, Julio, what is on deck next? It's Signs, correct? That is correct. The Mel Gibson vehicle, Signs. Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix. Who's the little girl? Is it a known actress? It's not Abigail Breslin, right? It is Abigail Breslin. Is it? Yes. And Rory Culkin is the little boy. Holy cow. Triumphant Return. Michael Showalter's in that? I did not remember that at all. A-listers, top to bottom, all of them. All right, so Signs is up next. 
That brings us to our perennial plugs. I want to start off by thanking the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us up with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our logo and all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our upcoming merch, that's all courtesy of Hans Rothwieser, who is a renaissance man. He does comics, he does logos, he writes novels, he does podcasts, he does it all. And I'm pretty sure he's watched Last Airbender like the anime, because he, he strikes me as that kind of guy. He likes Doctor Who, and I'm sure he likes anime. So we'll find out after he listens to this episode. But uh, Hans, you can check out his work on his webpage, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios or email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. His podcasts are Nación Combi and Marginal. They're both on all podcatchers. One is about Peruvian current affairs. The other one is about economy. You can also check out all his novels. Most of them are about zombies. Uh, The most recent one is... uh, zombie anthology uh, where each zombie story is written by an author from a different region of Peru and each story takes place in that region. Pretty cool gimmick. Hans, thank you for all your support. And as always, thank you to Miss Zoe Perez for helping out with our social media game. If you haven't already, be sure to head over to Instagram, follow us at Contrarian Prime, uh, facebook.com backslash Contrarian Prime, and of course uh, our Twitter account at Contrarian Prime. Uh, Instagram and Facebook, though, you're going to find some videos and graphics that Zoe makes for us. Helps make our social media presence much prettier than it would be if it were just up to Julio and I. So, Zoe, we appreciate all the work you do for us. And with all those pleasantries out of the way, that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. We'll catch you next time when the aliens can't handle water. (laughs) 